Matthew chapter 4, let's get to verse 12. We read, now when Jesus heard that John, and this is John the baptizer, had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun. And Zebulun, if you don't know your geography, was kind of an area located south of the Sea of Galilee, but west towards the Mediterranean Sea. It included Nazareth, Jesus' hometown, and Naphtali. And Naphtali was another area which kind of encompassed the western shore um, of the Sea of Galilee, extended far north into Israel, and included Capernaum, so some cities of significance. So Jesus goes into these regions, the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, Matthew says, which was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, saying, and now he quotes Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people sat in darkness, have seen a great light, And upon those who sat in the region in shadow of death, light has dawned. In a verse-by-verse study through a book like Matthew, a book that's kind of unique in the sense that it has three companion narratives, the Gospels, Mark, Luke, and John, with two of the three, Mark and Luke, actually documenting similar content just from different perspectives. In light of that, two challenges, just being honest, kind of emerge for the preacher. First, When a story has a duplicate narrative, the challenge is like how much of those parallel accounts should be included. Secondly, you're often left challenged with how much of the larger chronology should I establish just for context. I mean, this is a series, uh, and it's not a harmony of the Gospels, it's a series through Matthew. So how much do I stay in just this text? How much other resources do I pull in? And admittedly, there's really no wrong answer to these questions. It's really left to kind of the preference of the preacher himself. Now, with that in mind, I believe as long as we keep Matthew's core intent front and center, that he's establishing this idea, the case, for the kingship of Jesus, pulling in additional details from the other narratives, as well as establishing kind of a chronological context using the other four Gospels, the other three Gospels, I think it deepens our ability to really grasp, to fully understand what's occurring in a passage. In case in point, it's worth noting that approximately one year has passed since the conclusion of Jesus' 40 days of temptation in verse 11 and this detail recorded in verse 12 that Jesus heard that John had been put into prison. An entire year has transpired between two verses. Now, because of John's arrest and his tragic death, because it's documented later in the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to hold off on our commentary on that detail uh, for now. But from my perspective, like this section of Matthew 4 gains a lot of clarity when you place it into this greater context, right? What has Jesus been doing over the course of the last year that Matthew hasn't written. What's he up to? Now, according to the first few chapters of John's Gospel, after his showdown with Satan in the wilderness, Jesus would remain near the Jordan River, where he would have his first interactions with two men, Andrew and Philip. They were early disciples of John the Baptist. 
And from those encounters, Jesus would have additional encounters with their respective brothers, Andrew's brother Peter and Philip's brother Nathaniel. From the Jordan, Jesus would briefly return to the Galilee. In fact, he returns to attend a wedding in a small town known as Cana, where he performs his first miracle, turning water into wine. Then from Cana, Jesus would head south, have a quick layover in Capernaum, before continuing back down into Judea to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. And it would be during this first spring festival that we're told Jesus, seeing what was happening, made for himself a, a whip of cords and proceeds to cleanse the temple of the money changers for the first time. He'll do it again uh, towards the end of his ministry. Again, relying on John's account, Jesus would then remain in Jerusalem, kind of bouncing back and forth between the capital city and the larger region of Judea. He'd spend time teaching the people, performing signs and miracles. In fact, during this early season of ministry, that's known as kind of Jesus' year of obscurity, he would be approached late at night by one of the premier scholars of Judaism, a man named Nicodemus, the original Nick at night. And the profound conversation that they have about what it really means to be born again, it's recorded for us in John 3. In addition to the teaching and the miracles, according to John 4, Jesus even allowed his growing collection of disciples to baptize in the same area of the Jordan River that John the Baptist had set up. Now, Jesus didn't baptize, but he allowed some of his followers to. And over the course of months, the months that followed, we're told that Jesus would go from being kind of an unknown quantity, which he was, an unknown rabbi, to being even more popular than John the Baptist, which we've noted was very popular during the season. Now, this was a detail that the religious establishment had even taken note of. Now ultimately, because of John's arrest, as we're told here in Matthew 4, and the growing heat that would result, Jesus leaves Judea, and he does return to Galilee. However, on his journey north, he would stop in the Syrian city of Sychar and have another riveting exchange with a woman who had come to draw water from Jacob's well. According to John 4, verses, verse 43, we're told that after then two days, of ministering to the people of Samaria, Jesus, he departs and finally makes his way into the Galilee. Look again at verses 12 and 13. Now when Jesus heard that John had been put into prison, so there's a lot of things that have been happening before that, he departed to Galilee. Now we don't have mention of the stop in Samaria, but we know that to be the case. But then Matthew says, and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum. Now that's interesting. In his record, Matthew indicates that Jesus' first stop in his return to the Galilee was his hometown of Nazareth. Before then, ultimately, he continues onward to establish his headquarters in Capernaum. And scholars admittedly are a little split, divided on this particular topic, but I believe the events of Luke chapter 4 sit between Matthew 12 and 13. When Jesus goes to Nazareth, and he's sitting in the synagogue as was his custom, and he opens the scroll to read, and he picks out a passage from Isaiah about proclaiming the acceptable year of the Lord, the mission of the Messiah. And he says, today this is fulfilled in your hearing, and his, his hometown crowd wants to stone him to death. 
And so they take him out to throw him off a cliff. And we're told he just departed through the middle of them on his way. I think all that happens between verses 12 and 13. Now, crafting his account, again, with the intention of presenting Jesus as the king, not just of the Jews, but the king. Matthew tells us the fact that Jesus would eventually spend more of his time in Galilee as opposed to Jerusalem, and this is his point, Matthew tells us this is prophetically significant. He he quotes Isaiah, and he says, The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. Writing of the Galilean region. First century Jewish historian, a man by the name of Josephus, He documents in his annals that this area of the Galilee, which comprised of about roughly 900 square miles, contained 204 villages populated by 15,000 people each. Now, there's some debate as to whether or not uh, Josephus' numbers should be taken literally, if they were exaggerated to some degree, but Josephus' histories are pretty reliable regarding big details, and there's no reason to think that he's off in his calculations. Keep in mind, it's an area of 900 square miles, 204 villages populated by 15,000 people each. If you're running the quick math, That would equate to an astounding 3 million residents, making Galilee densely populated. Now, for a little context as to this specific geographic footprint, like what, what does 900 square miles practically look like? Let's say you take the church and you put the church in the epicenter of a circle. Let me tell you what 900 square miles looks like. If you go to the very top, the north, you would have Jefferson. That would be in the very top corner uh, portion of the circle. Jefferson. Up north of Brazelton, you've got 85, 985, kind of included in the very top. Now, if you go to the bottom, you have where Vinny lives, social circle. So that's the top, and that's the bottom. Now, if you go west, you'd get to the outskirts of Lawrenceville. And if you go east, you'd get to downtown Athens. So that circle, that general circle, is what 900 square miles looks like. Now, imagine 3 million people living in that area. For context of 3 million people, that's roughly 300,000 more than the 2.7 million people currently living in the city of Chicago. You're talking about... I ran the numbers, had some fun with this. But you're talking about 3,333 people per square mile. Now, that might not mean anything, but for context, what does that look like? Gwinnett County, which most of us moved out of because it was too populated, has a population density, according to the latest census, of 2,123 people per square mile. Galilee 3,333 people, which is very close to the city of Atlanta, but you don't have high-rises, condominiums. My point is when you're thinking about the ministry of Jesus, there are a ton of people living in the area. So when you read about Jesus going from town to town to town, this is quick walks from this part to this part, a couple miles in between, and there are people everywhere. Densely populated. So when Jesus you know, feeds 5,000 families, and we estimate it might be twenty-five to 30,000. When you take into account the population, 
It's like, well, well, like that's actually somewhat reasonable. Like that makes sense. That gains some context. According to Josephus, again, and, and in many ways confirmed by what we know of the area today, the Galilee was heavily populated in Jesus' day, mainly because of the Sea of Galilee, and the fact that it had incredibly fertile soil for agricultural development. Not only did Galilee have an abundance of food and water, but it offered a way for people to make a living. It had commerce. There was an economy. Like, for example, as the carpenter from Nazareth, Jesus was not a framer. You know, they didn't, they didn't build houses out of wood. Wood was a, a, a special commodity. They mainly built houses out of stone and mortar. Lots of rocks in the area. So Jesus, as the carpenter, like a lot of what he did supported these two primary industries. Again, homes not made of, of wood, but fishing boats were. Yokes used for the tilling of the fields, wheels, you know, for carts to get stuff to the market. Jesus Again, employed as a carpenter because of this industry. Galilee was what we would call, in today's world, prime real estate. And in many ways, as a result, the region was the original melting pot. And I think this is interesting when, when we get into Jesus' ministry, like the collection of people that lived in Galilee. Now, there was undoubtedly a, a, a sizable Jewish population. But you also had all kinds of of various people groups who had been relocated into Galilee from first the Assyrians when they dominated the area and then the Babylonians when they conquered the Assyrians and then the Persians when they conquered the Babylonians and then the Greeks when they took over for the Persians and in Jesus' day, the Roman Empire. In fact, again, Josephus notes that during Jesus' day, during the first century, there were actually more Gentiles living in Galilee than there were Jews. Interesting, right? As Isaiah the prophet wrote 600 uh, centuries earlier, the area that Jesus Christ would spend most of his time was indeed, look at the text, Galilee of the Gentiles. Yeah, it's strange to consider, but the Sea of Galilee. And and if you're reading through the Gospels, you'll come across a couple other names for the same body of water. You have the Sea of Galilee, it's Aramaic. You have the Lake of Gennesaret, which is the Hebrew dialect. And Gennesaret, it means harp-shaped. And if you look at the, the, the Sea of Galilee, it does look like a harp. The Romans called it the Sea of Tiberias in their tongue. But the Sea of Galilee, it's not very large at all. In fact, it's quite small. It's, it's 13 miles long, and it's 8 miles wide. You stand on the shore, and you can see the entire body of water. It covers an area of about... 64 square miles, which is roughly the size of Washington, D.C. The circumference of the lake is 33 miles. Now what's interesting is since the Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, is positioned 700 feet below sea level, it's the lowest freshwater lake on planet Earth. I didn't know that until I was doing a little research, and I've been there. For, for a little context, the Dead Sea, which is salt water sits at 1,400 feet below sea level, and it's the Jordan River that connects these two bodies of water. And it's because of the high topography and the mountains around the Sea of Galilee that she is famous, the the lake is famous, for having these rapidly developing violent storms, the low-pressure zones and the high-pressure zones coming down onto the water, creating huge 
really fearsome swells. It's been said Galilee gets her name for she's the lake that behaves like a sea. Matthew tells us that Jesus came and he dwelt in Capernaum. And then he adds that Capernaum's by the sea. Translated Capernaum as Nahum's village. And Nahum was an Old Testament prophet who spoke about Nineveh's impending fall. She was an important fishing village. And she's located on the northern shore, just below a mountain called Arbel, at the entrance of a valleyway known as the Valley of the Doves. As a result, Capernaum, fishing village, situated at the entrance of this valley, she was really the gateway to a major important trade route that connected the Sea of Galilee and the fishing industry there with the Mediterranean Sea. Nazareth was situated about the halfway point uh, on this particular trade route. Historically, we know Capernaum was probably one of the most significant of the cities in the area because it was the home to the Roman centurion who was charged with the area. Peter had a home in Capernaum. Not just Peter, but Matthew, our author, also. Capernaum would be Jesus' base of operations while in the region. Now don't miss this notable point that Jesus would spend the lion's share of his time in Galilee. You know, if you're thinking of Jesus as the king, you know, the logical place for Jesus to spend the most of his time, right, would be the center of power, the center of religious learning. You would think Jesus would have spent the majority of his time with the movers and the shakers in Jerusalem. And yet, no, according to Matthew, Jesus spent most of his time in Galilee. He deliberately uh, ministered in a community of of simple, blue-collar folks where you had this blending of Jew and Gentile alike. Again, Matthew explains why this is important, pointing back to Isaiah the prophet, that it was part of God's overarching desire for the people who sat in darkness, for those who sat in the region and in the shadow of death, for those in Galilee, to see the dawning of a great light. And as we read through Jesus' ministry in this area, no doubt they, they did see this. Verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach... And to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, the first thing that jumps out at you when you read this verse is the fact that Jesus' message in, in the Galilee, to the Galileans, was identical to the one preached by John the Baptist down in the Jordan. So why is this? Well, the easy explanation, I think the simple explanation, is the fact that we have been told about the impact of John's ministry but we were told that it, that it impacted Jerusalem, Judea, on, on the other side of the Jordan. But we don't have a lot of record of it reaching into the Galilee. So Jesus is repeating this important message to a group of people that haven't been exposed to it yet, preparing them for the coming of the Messiah. Now, we've already unpacked the significant role that repentance plays in our lives and our commentary on the ministry of John the Baptist. So I'm going to kind of leave that. If you're interested, go back, look at the commentary in it. But I do want to just briefly, and we're going to do this very briefly, emphasize an important detail in verse 17 that you might be inclined to miss. According to Matthew, Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the promised Messiah, he came to Galilee to do what? Perform miracles? No, that's not what the text says. 
to do incredible wonders? That's not what the text says. Great signs? Not what the text says. All things Jesus did. To be a revolutionary? That's not... Jesus came to the Galilee as the king as what? He came to preach. Jesus was a preacher. Now, next Sunday, we'll explore that idea a little bit further uh, as we begin a study in one of his famous sermons, the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 18. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. So that's a logical thing to be doing if you're a fisherman. Then he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So they immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, Jesus saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, and the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. You know, because of the, the, the kind of matter of fact, nature, style, and the way that, that Matthew is presenting here, Jesus is calling of Peter, Andrew, James, and John to officially be disciples. This is just another one of those perfect examples where the other Gospels provided some important context because this was not a matter of fact. This was not a very casual thing. There's a lot going on that Matthew doesn't articulate, mainly because it was presented in other Gospels. Now, first and foremost, as you, as you seek to understand the story and the calling of these important men, please note, this was not any of their first exposure to Jesus at all, actually. Like a year earlier, a year before this, we have the following occasion recorded in John chapter 1, verses 35 and 42. I'll read it for you. We're told now John, this is the Baptist, stood with two of his disciples and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. So the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. This would have been Andrew and Philip. Then he turned and seeing them follow, said to them, What do you seek? And they replied to him, Rabbi, where are you staying? So Jesus said, Come and see. And they came and they saw where he was staying. And they hung out for a whole day. That's my paraphrase. Now one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Again, the other being Philip. He first found his own brother Simon. So he has this experience with Jesus. And he goes and he finds his brother, Peter. And he says, we've found the Messiah. So Andrew brings Peter to Jesus. And when Jesus looked at Peter, he said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah. So this is his, his Hebrew name. You shall be called Cephas, or what's translated stone, which we would get Peter. Now, keep in mind, Jesus established a relational connection with Peter and Andrew several months before this occasion that Matthew records. In fact, Andrew, we can surmise, had been a dedicated disciple of John the Baptist, which tells us some things, doesn't it? Tells us he had repented of sin. He was actively looking for the Messiah. And then when John's like, Jesus, behold the Lamb, both he and Peter, they end up convinced in their exchange with Jesus that he's the Christ. Again, months before a call. That said, if you go back and you study John's account, even though they're convinced Jesus is the Messiah, 
There's no evidence that Jesus called either of them, Andrew or his brother Peter, to be official disciples at that moment. He doesn't say, come follow me. No, he just has, he renames Peter. I got plans for you, buddy. You know, let's hang out. But there's no formal nature of discipleship in John's account. Now, regarding James and John, let's get to them very quickly because I think that's fascinating. I hope you do. If not, check out for about five minutes. Regarding James and John and the Gospels, so we're going we're gonna to kind of go on a rabbit, rabbit trail real fast. And the Gospels were given three lists of the Galilean women who were at the cross when Jesus died. And if you take those three lists and you compare them, something very interesting emerges. In John 19, verse 25, we're told there by the cross was, uh, the cross of Jesus was his mother, so that's Mary, the mother of Jesus, his mother's sister, so Jesus' aunt, Mary, the wife of Cloopas, who scholars believe to be Joseph's brother's wife, or Mary's sister-in-law, again, another aunt of Jesus, another relative, and then Mary Magdalene. So that's John's list. And Mark 15, verses 40 and 41, we have another list. He records Mary Magdalene, so that's duplicate. Mary, the mother of James the Less, uh, and Yoses. So this is, this is Jesus' mom, again, referencing two of his brothers. Salome, and also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee. And lastly, in Matthew 27, verse 50, 56, we have the final reference. Again, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of Jess and Yosef, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Now, according to Eusebius, who was an early church father, the woman that John presents as his mother's sister, which is very vague, Mark identifies as being Salome, and then Matthew describes as being the mother of Zebedee's sons is in fact the same woman. So think, think, think about the connections. Not only does that make Salome the sister of Mary, but more importantly, it makes James and John Jesus' cousins. Which is really interesting because think about it. John was the youngest of what we would call the apostles. And he describes himself in his own gospel as the one in which Jesus loved. Again, Jesus being the older cousin would have, would have taken an interest in making sure the youngest was taken care of. They were family. He'd have to deal with mom, right? And not only that, it explains why then at the cross, Jesus goes to John from the cross. And he's like, I need you to take care of mom. They're family. So that's not abnormal or weird at all. So James and John are Jesus' cousins. Now, when you take it into account, that in Luke 5, Peter and Andrew were the business partners of James and John, I think an interesting mosaic kind of comes into view. These four men had likely known Jesus probably their entire lives. In fact, in the record of of Mary and Joseph losing the Son of God, a preteen Jesus. Again, which, which had to have given you heart palpitations. You know, it's one thing to lose your kid in the grocery store, but imagine God being like, hey, here's my son, take care of him, and then you lose him for a day, and you're like, oh my goodness, when are the angels showing up? You know? So they lose, they lose Jesus, 
And what happens? They travel for a day, and we're told in Luke 2, verse 44, that after this day of traveling, they had supposed that Jesus had been in the company. Again, they traveled together. So what did they do? They went and sought Jesus among their relatives and acquaintances. Could this have been James and John and Peter and Andrew? Maybe. I think likely. Now, with that in mind, what's happening in this passage It proved to be a profound, monumental moment for these men. For the last several months, while working their nine-to-five job as fishermen, Peter, Andrew, James, and John would would have clocked out and caught up with wherever Jesus was. And as much as they could on the weekend, they would have followed Jesus around. They would have listened to him preach. They would have watched and wondered Jesus' love for people, the miracles, the healings. And in their minds, there's no doubt Jesus is the Messiah. He's the promised king of Israel. And then the day came. I mean, they're kind of groupies. But then the day arrives, according to Matthew, that Andrew and Peter, they're casting a net into the sea, which means they're likely fishing from the shore because there's no mention of a boat. When Jesus comes up and he's like, hey, guys, what's up? And they're like, what's up? He's like, come follow me. And they're like, awesome. Let's do this. And then just a few minutes later, as James and John are in their boats, hanging out with pops, mending their nets, Jesus comes by and he's like, hey, guys, hanging out with Peter and Andrew, come follow me. And they're like, awesome. Within rabbinical tradition, the formal invitation of a rabbi, like this phrase, follow me, it, it was loaded, and it was clearly understood. It was, it was a formal phrase. These four men had been fans of Jesus. Close, likely companions. But now Jesus is inviting them to make a commitment, to take a step to be his disciples. As such, in a formal role, they would travel with him, they would tend to certain needs, they would learn at his feet, they would be trained to one day represent Jesus. Now, though this was an offer, all four men instantly accepted. Matthew says that Andrew and Peter immediately left their nets to follow him, and James and John, their boat, and dad. Placing this occasion, however, and to the larger framework we're given in the Gospels, something interesting emerges. And again, we'll get to an application to all this in a moment, but I just want you to know what's happening. In Matthew's account here, what appears to be this invitation to follow me, to be a disciple, was that Jesus was only asking them for a part-time commitment. Which again, was not a completely abnormal thing, because you needed to make a living, you needed to provide for yourself, It was how it was. And here's why I can say this. In Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, we have another story that's very similar, but distinctly different. In fact, it's different enough that it has to be a separate occasion altogether. Let let me read you this other account. Luke says, so it was, as the multitudes pressed about Jesus to hear the word of God. Again, he's a preacher that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats standing by the lake. But the fishermen had gone from them. They were washing their nets. 
So he gets into one of the boats, which was Simon's, again Peter, and asked him to put out a little from the land. And Jesus sat down and he taught the multitudes from the boat. And when Jesus had stopped speaking, so he wraps up his sermon, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your net. But Peter answers and he says to him, Master, we've toiled all night, we've caught nothing. This isn't how you fish. Nevertheless, at your word, okay. And when they had done this, Luke says they caught a great number of fish and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help. And they came and filled both boats so that they all began to sink. And when Peter, Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees and he says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will catch men. So when they had brought in their boats to the land, they forsook all and followed him. Now, the, the reason I place this story following the account given in Matthew 4 really centers on kind of a unique distinction in what Jesus says to Peter in both scenarios. And in Matthew chapter 4, verse 14, Jesus says what? He says to Peter, and it's a promise, I will make you fishers of Powerful. However, though, in the recorded account of Luke, Jesus says, from now on, you will catch men. Now, while the first promise was presented in a future tense, I will do something, I will make you. The second coupling, from now on, indicates, it implies, a present immediacy. Like the evidence suggests that Matthew 4 documents Jesus' initial invitation for these men to become disciples while also remaining fishermen. And it was not then until Luke 5 that Jesus officially invites them to be full-time disciples. To make discipleship a full-time endeavor. Now this, this is important to me. And if, you, if you think that this might be a little academic, it, it might be. At first, there's a lot of a lot of skepticism, a lot of accusations. People have often a lot of problems with the calling of the disciples because of a lot of some of their distinctions and how they're presented. I just think they're different stories, different moments. There's a progress to this. The other reason is, is what I'm going to get to, and it's how it, it removes some misconceptions that I think people have when it comes to the nature of discipleship. You know, one of the misconceptions that we're often left with when we kind of conceptualize the ministry of Jesus well, first, one of the misconceptions is that Jesus only called 12 disciples. Like, that's not true at all. To this point, though Philip and Nathaniel, and now Peter, Andrew, James, and John have been officially called, it won't be until Matthew 10 that Jesus chooses 12 from what was at a minimum 82 disciples he had called to be his inner circle. And note, after picking the 12, in Luke 10, we record of Jesus sending out 70 disciples to represent him and do practical ministry. There were a lot of disciples that Jesus called beyond just these 12 men. I should also add this phrase that we have. They forsook all and followed him. It is a tad misleading. You know, according to John 21, so this is, this is after the resurrection of Jesus. 
Peter, James, John, and at least four other disciples. You know what they do? They go back to the Sea of Galilee to do what? To fish. And they have no problems getting a boat. Because of this, Jesus will have to appear. And what does he do? He calls Peter to follow him, I think for a third time. In all likelihood, these men, when we're told they they forsook all uh, to follow him, yeah, they they made a decision, there was a sacrifice, but they probably handed over the family businesses to trusted employees who also provided their families with a revenue stream. They had families. Again, James and John, their father ran the business, and Simon and, and, uh, and Andrew are business partners. The father ran, you know, like we have a misconception of what that looked like, practically speaking. Here's the point I'm trying to make, and maybe not doing a great job of it, but I'll double down. (laughs) While it is true that there is a real sacrifice in making the decision to follow Jesus, and don't miss that. If you have not made a decision to follow Jesus, I'm not diminishing the reality that that decision will have there's a sacrifice to it. But what I'm trying to say, and what I think we get wrong, is that there is a process in the way in which Jesus goes about calling disciples. When we read a story like this one, I don't know if you get the same same reaction that I do. You kind of get the impression, again, the way that Matthew presents, that Jesus is kind of walking around the Sea of Galilee making cold calls. You know that he's walking around, and he sees these men, and they catch like a twinkle in Jesus' eye. And like they've never met, they've never had any exposure, but there's just something supernatural, magical, mystical, and the way, maybe it's the flowing hair and the robes or the British accent, who knows? But as Jesus is walking around, he's like, you guys, come follow me. And they're like, oh, I don't know who you are, but I'm just going to do this in blind faith. Like, I don't know, sometimes people get that idea that it was just this, his aura, his presence, there was something about him. First exposure, we abandon everything. And in an act of blind faith, we'll follow you. But that's not the case. And I don't think, again, that's the biblical mosaic. Let's recap. This process begins in their lives first, through the prophetic testimony of John the Baptist to Andrew, a disciple of John. Again, it means that Andrew's already repented of his sins. He's actively looking for the Messiah. For Peter, his exposure came via the testimony of his brother that leads him to his own encounter with Jesus. Then it's safe to assume their intrigue spilled over to their friends James and John about their cousin Jesus, of which they all know and are aware. Like relationally, All four men have a personal connection with Jesus. And over the next few months, they spend time with him. They hear him speak. They see him act. Before Jesus calls them, they're convinced he's the Messiah. He's the Christ. And then came this process, the calling. Already believers, Jesus now invites them to be disciples, students, apprentices. Let's take this to the next step. While these men had jobs and families, that sounds awesome. They jumped at the chance to take on a formal role. And while we don't know how long that dynamic lasted, these men 
like many of you, had to balance being a disciple of Jesus and a secular job, being a fisherman. And then at long last, the day came where Jesus is like, hey guys, uh, will you all make a full-time commitment? And they're like, absolutely. Note, after Jesus demonstrates, I have no, uh, no problems taking care of your families with the haul of fish. You know, one of the misconceptions, again, when it comes to the calling of Jesus, is that it requires blind faith. You know, never once in Scripture is blindness and faith connected. In fact, we're given, <laughs> we don't have to guess, we're given the definition of faith in the book of Hebrews. That faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not clearly seen. Meaning that faith fundamentally has both substance and evidence as a core component. Jesus doesn't ask you to take a blind step. He asks you to take what you know and apply it appropriately in light of him. These men, it's not a blind step. Jesus didn't walk up to these guys in the shore of the Sea of Galilee and invite them to act on anything other than what they were already convinced of. They had already been convinced that it was true. They'd hung out with him. They'd heard him speak. They watched him act. These men's decision to follow Jesus was 100% rational and in line with everything they already knew. You know, the other great misconception about the call of Jesus that, that we often derive from a misunderstanding of, of texts like this is that the call of Jesus for you to follow him means that your life instantly changes. You know, we get that idea like, well, Jesus is walking on the shore and he's like, hey, forsake all and follow me. And that everything changed. Like, well, I didn't like the wife at home anyway, so this sounds awesome. And the kids, I can, I can bail on them too. I'm forsaking. He said forsake all. And then his wife was like, yeah, he also said bear the cross. So I'm coming with you, you know, like. It was a thing. But like we have this idea that like Jesus calls you to be a disciple and everything in your life immediately changes. It's not the case, man, at all. Now, I will say, what will change is you. <laughs> you immediately change. Why? Because he replaces your, your dead spirit with a living one, his Holy Spirit. And instantly there is a transformation of desire. Not always of behavior, but of desire. <laughs> you know, there's a thing to it. There's a process behind it. But what's the reality? You change the moment Jesus calls you to be a disciple. But how much of your life actually changes? Very little. Like you go home to the same house. You have the same friends for a while. You still are stuck with the same family. You even have the same job. Like, never forget that Jesus came to change you. And not always the environment you happen to be in. Let me add two larger points to this story that's kind of central to its application. At first, again, Jesus had way more unnamed disciples than the 12 he later singles out. And don't ever forget that. In fact, during the initial year of obscurity, 
recorded in John's gospel, the first four chapters, you'll have many mentions of his disciples, his disciples. But you know, never once are we provided the identity of any of those disciples. We don't know if it was Peter or, or Andrew or James or John. Like, we don't know at all. Which leads me to my second point. I, I believe that the experiences of the 12, you know, those that are recorded for us, and really, most notably, Peter, James, and John, who would make up a core of three in, in the midst of the inner circle. I think their experiences, you've got to keep in mind when you're reading through it, they're unique to them. That God was doing something unique in their lives that doesn't always translate to ours. Like, let me explain why these two points are important. For some disciples of Jesus, a day does arise when he invites them to leave behind their secular profession. When he invites them to trust him entirely with their, provision, with, it, with their provisions, to enter into what I would call an occupational service, just like these four men. You know, it's interesting that Jesus would call them to be fishers of men, which to me is, is really, they were fishermen. So what they did in their secular profession He's like, I want to take those skills, and now in my service, I want to use them. You're a fisher of fish. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. I, I find that very cool. And yet, I guess this is the big point of the study. That's not the experience of every disciple that's called. In fact, I would say it's probably the experience of the majority of disciples called. You see, the scriptures confirm that the majority of those that Jesus calls to discipleship, you know what he does? He's like, hey, come follow me, but you're going to have to stay in your job. You know? You're going to have to serve me, you're going to have to follow me, you're going to have to be a disciple, but you're going to have to stay a fisherman. I need you to be a fisherman. That he leaves that person in, in their profession. And what's cool, so there are some Jesus calls to full-time profession, there are some he calls to part-time, you still got to work, but both groups are called, and both are considered disciples. Now, Christian, in, in, in either scenario, the intention of discipleship is it's the same, right? As a disciple of Jesus, as the disciple of the rabbi, it's to represent, to reflect Jesus the rabbi. Which is why the decision to follow Jesus is the first step of discipleship. You see, the only way that you can authentically reflect Jesus to the world around you is by spending time with Jesus. Like, you can't reflect Jesus on your own. You can't muster that up. You can't make that happen. You can't accomplish that. The only way that you can reflect the heart of Jesus is to know the heart of Jesus. The only way you can know the heart of Jesus is to spend time with Jesus. It's the only way that you can reflect Jesus. It is something natural. It's not something you can manufacture. In fact, you know, we're given a very good illustration of how it works. The moon. You know, the moon gives off no light in and of itself. Like, there's no light mechanism inside of the moon. It's not burning up gases and creating its own light at all. The moon gives off no light in and of itself. It's powerless to do so. Instead, the brightness of the moon and the night sky 
is entirely dependent upon what one thing? Its position regarding the Son. In fact, the only thing that limits, that truly can limit the moon's ability to reflect the sun is what? The world. The more world that exists between the sun and the moon, the less light the moon reflects. The less of the world between you and the sun, the greater the light that will shine from your life. Verse 16, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. So, Father, Lord, we thank you for your word and what it says to us in its application. In Jesus' name.